Seeking the Extraordinary is sponsored by The Colony Group, a national wealth and business management company that seeks the extraordinary by pursuing an unrelenting mission of providing clients with peace of mind and empowering their visions of tomorrow. To learn more about how The Colony Group manages beyond money, visit thecolonygroup.com. Welcome, fellow seekers of the extraordinary. Welcome to our shared quest. A quest not for a thing, but for an ideal. A quest not for a place, but into the inner, unexplored regions of ourselves. A quest to understand how we can achieve our fullest potential by learning from others who have done or are doing exactly that. May we always have the courage and wisdom to learn from those who have something to teach. Join me now in Seeking the Extraordinary. I'm Michael Nathanson, your Chief Seeker of the Extraordinary. Today's guest is one of the great entrepreneurs and retail visionaries of our time. After graduating from college with a degree in psychology, he became a bartender, a social worker, the owner of several flower shops in New York City, and ultimately the founder of something much larger and much more impactful what we now know as 1-800-Flowers. In 1995, he launched 1-800-Flowers.com, becoming one of the early leaders in e-commerce when the rest of us were still trying to figure out what e-commerce ultimately might be. His company did an initial public offering in 1999, and his business model not only changed the way we shop, give gifts, and express our emotions and appreciation, but also the way other businesses now operate. He's been Entrepreneur of the Year, Retailer of the Year, and Direct Marketer of the Year. He's now a celebrated philanthropist, board member, author, speaker, and even professional baseball team owner. Please welcome the extraordinary Jim McCann. Wow, welcome, I, Jim. I, I'm a little embarrassed. <laughs> you, I bet you hear that all the time. How so, Jim, great to have you on our show. Thank good you. Good to be with you, Michael. So, so Jim, everyone's heard of 1-800-Flowers.com. And we're certainly going to get to your story, and we want to learn more about that. But this is a show about seeking the extraordinary. And what we're really looking for are the secrets to how you did it and to your life so that we can better understand how a guy who maybe it was born like the rest of us ordinary truly achieved his fullest potential and became extraordinary. So with that, why don't we start with your childhood and... Could you tell us a little bit about your childhood and maybe focus specifically on any parts of it that you think might have contributed to whom you are today? Sure, Michael. Mine's a very simple, common, un unremarkable childhood. I grew up, unlike you fancy folks up in New England, I grew up in, uh, in not-so-fancy Queens, New York, a very blue-collar neighborhood. I'm the oldest of five children. My mom and dad started young and had us quickly. My dad, for a living, was a painting contractor. And, I, and as I look back now, I guess the reason they insisted I work at a very young age was to keep me from hanging around with the kids on the street because while it seemed like fun, it, it could not always lead to good outcomes. So my father's philosophy was old enough to walk, old enough to work. So before I found jobs on my own, uh, if, I had, if I was around in the summertime, I went to work for dad and worked for his different job sites. And that, so I did all the things that the men who worked for him wouldn't do. I remember one time, Michael, I saw a painting contractor, he specialized in churches 
funeral homes and schools, mm -hmm. Brooklyn and Queens. And I remember we were doing a church in Brooklyn and he told me, okay, tomorrow you're going to be uh, working on the steeple on the outside. And, but we have a, a piece of equipment for you called a bosun's chair. So I thought, wow, that sounds like a pretty fancy piece of equipment. A bosun's chair was a piece of rope with a piece of wood across it that my butt went on and they threw the, a pulley over the top and they yanked me up to, to scrape oh, and paint the outside of the steeple. <laughs> I said, well, I got fooled on that one. I got picked because I was the only one who would do it and I was light enough <laughs> that I wouldn't break the rope. But so I grew up in, in a good family, extended family, non-affluent neighborhood. All role models, Michael, growing up were policemen and firemen. Once in a while, there'd be someone who would put a suit on and go to the city. And when we say go to the city, for us, that was Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And But we weren't quite sure what they'd do in an office all day. And then there were some shopkeepers. Oh, and of course, there were some celebrated entrepreneurs. One who used to live down the block from me was a fellow by the name of John Gotti. But that was a whole different kind of oh. profession that uh, you yeah. didn't really aspire to go into. Different kind of entrepreneur. <laughs> Indeed. So were you a good student? No. Always curious, but didn't do a good job of paying attention in school. A lot of my fantasies to run awry. So just did okay. Okay. And those fantasies. So what were your dreams? Did you think about what you wanted to be when you grew up? Yes. Uh, the fantasies were the people I most admired in, in our community were, uh, you know, the policemen. So I thought I'd be a, a New York City cop. Ergo, when the first couple of colleges I went to suggested I go elsewhere, I was fortunate enough to wind up at the City University of New York, a place called John Jay College of Criminal Justice, because I thought I would become a policeman. While I was going to school there, Michael, going part-time, lots of the decisions you make early in life have a real consequence in terms of your optionality as you get older. And one of the things I did was get married very young. And we started a family very young. So that narrowed my options. I wasn't conscious of it at the time. But, you know, the amount of risk you could take and what options you take. I've only had two career jobs. Did lots of things. But two career jobs. And the first one was social worker. And how that came about was I was tending bar locally in Queens. And which was a good thing to do for someone over, trying to overcome shyness. Because you had a natural role to play. You were the mm -hmm. host. And so you were at the middle of the action. So it was a good thing to do. And, and this is after college. This is a... Uh, During college. Okay. Yeah. I, I was on the uh, seven or eight year program. I figured it was so good. Why not go as long as you can? And one of my, one of my customers, a very good friend, worked at this uh, home for teenage boys. And I'd ask him about it all the time. And, and uh, one day he said to me, Jesus, sounds like you'd be interested in this. Why don't you come visit me at work one day? So I did. And he ran a poem for 10 teenage boys in a very uh, tough neighborhood. And I went and had dinner with him there one night. And after dinner, he said, do you think you'd like to give this work a try? I said, yeah, I think I would. He said, okay. And he flipped me a ring of keys and said, you're on duty tonight because I have no one else to work. I'll see you in the morning. And that's how I started my first professional career in the social services. So it was a great experience for me. But then I got promoted quickly. And at a very young age, I'm now the administrator of this home for boys. So it wasn't a nine to five, uh, excuse me, it wasn't a 24-7 job anymore, uh, like it was when I lived in the group homes, which I did for a few years. But 
been marrying young and having kids young. These kids wanted to do some really strange things, Michael, like eat and go to school and buy clothes. And even as an administrator on a not-for-profit social services compensation, you starve. So back to doing things on the side, back to bartending. And did a place on the Upper East Side of New York. I had a customer who would stay late on a Friday or Saturday night and we'd chat. And he owned a flower shop across the street. Tells me one night, I think I'm going to be selling it. I have this whole new other business scheme I'm going to pursue. So I thought about it. And I thought, retail, flower shop. There's a guy in my old neighborhood where I grew up. I had a very successful flower shop operation. Seemed to be doing quite well. Interacting with the public at good times in their life. So I asked him, I said, can I come work in your shop a couple of Saturday afternoons before I come in to work at the bar? He said, sure, why? I said, maybe I'm a buyer. And as serendipity would have it, I, one of the things working for my dad, I learned how to do carpentry and painting, light electrical, plumbing, that kind of stuff. So I'd buy buildings in tough neighborhoods, fix them up and either rent them out or sell them. And I just had sold the building and I had a $10,000 profit in it. Now, wait a minute. You're about 25 years old at this time, if I recall not, correctly. Not quite. Coming up okay. on it, though. <laughs> so you're a pretty young guy to be talking about maybe I'm a buyer and buying and selling buildings. Well, yeah, I, I was doing that for forever there. I wasn't old enough when I bought my first building, so my father had to sign for it. But so I had a $10,000 profit in that building. What's he asking for the flower shop? $10,000. And so that's how I got into the flower business. But I got in with the idea of building a business, not just becoming a florist, which of course I did. But so bartending and curiosity led me to both of my fun career choices. Okay, well, great. And so now you you get into the flower business and uh, and then what happens? You start getting interested in expanding that business. So tell us about that. Well, Michael, like, like the Connie Group, we're, we're just DNA coded to try and grow whatever we're involved in. In the painting business, we try and grow it all the time. When I ran the home for boys, I try and take care of more and more kids every year. So just have an eight, interest in growing because if you're not growing you're going backwards right mm-hmm. and uh, so I, and, and our version of seeking the extraordinary was i went into the business to build it as a business so six months after i bought the first flower shop and made a commitment to open up every six months if i could generate the cash from the ones that had already opened up so we had a, a, a pretty good collection of flower shops before i realized hey <laughs> there's no synergy in these scale does not matter here in fact, uh, there were some dis-synergies from scale in the flower shop business. So I said, there's got to be a better way. And that's when we decided to switch. I bought the company that had in it the telephone number 800 Flowers. When I say a company, this was a failed deal. But it changed how we thought about growing. It changed how we thought about customers accessing our front door. In your book, you talk about how you actually were doing business with the company that owned 1-800-Flowers. That's right. And that you got interested in the business. And you talk about how surprised you were to learn how much money they had sunk into this gigantic building. And it was basically a failing business. Those are my words, not yours. At least I think they're my words, not yours. The only thing I disagree with was the tent, uh, the tents. That is, it failed. (laughs) But I was Um, amazed when I went down to Dallas, as you say, we were a florist for the New York area for them when they launched. And just in a few months, they spent a fortune on TV ads and full page color ads and weekly magazines. And then also, boom, it stopped. Three months later, it's gone. So I went down and, and bought what was left of it, which was very little. I just this morning saw 
the, I grabbed one desk and a couple of chairs and loaded on the truck as we looted the building right before we lost it. And that was the uh, secretary's desk to the boss then. And uh, we still have that desk here. And so it's still a beautiful desk. I was just noticing this morning. <laughs> and I still don't have a desk as nice as it, but one of the guys here in our shop uses that desk to this day. But it sounds like you you still had to put up a good amount of money, really just for that phone number. And you assumed all kinds of debt. And then even after you acquired the company, the foreclosure was occurring. It must have been a scary time for you. It was uh, frightening as could be in, in all but a physical sense. I had, in 10 years of operating my flower shop business, had accumulated enough assets that I could uh, get together $2 million, which was what it cost for me to put down to buy this business. I thought so much of that 800 number, I thought it'd be worthwhile. And as you point out, Michael, trying to make me uh, feel bad about my mistakes here. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> oh, please. I, I hardly think it was a mistake. Oh, <laughs> well, it was. But I wasn't smart enough to, or, or worldly enough to understand how I could work with someone like the Colony Group or any kind of professionals in terms of bankers or lawyers or accountants. And so instead of doing due diligence, I did due negligence and signed for all this stuff myself. And uh, then came to learn that they had accumulated $7 million in debt that I didn't know about. Frankly, they didn't know about. And now I was responsible for it personally. And I had great motivation to get up in the morning and try and make a business out of this. Yeah, I can imagine you did. And in fact, you've talked about publicly how, so look, you're being humble and I hardly think that this was luck, but you do talk about how luck does matter. And you talk about how your timing worked well in terms of the confluence of, of various events and why this became successful for you. Can you speak to that a little bit? Well, Michael, look at what we're living through now. Luck plays a role. Now, clearly hard work, but I know lots of people who work hard, real hard, and haven't had the good fortune that I've had. And it goes both ways. How about the poor fellow in Boston who works for 15 years for other people, saves up enough money, and finally opens up his own restaurant on March 15th of 2020. Exactly. What did he do wrong? Nothing. But he just got screwed. And so you can have good luck, you can have bad luck. And, and bad luck was uh, the decisions we made in the beginning. But then so many people that I've had the good fortune to learn from and, uh, have taught me to learn. What I mean by that is, Look around at people who are successful and what common characteristics do you see in them? And one of my heroes, a man I got to know and thought the world of, was a fellow by the name of Wayne Heisinger. Mm -hmm. And Wayne is one of the most celebrated and deservedly so entrepreneurs that our country's ever produced. He built from scratch five Fortune 500 companies, which is a feat not to be accomplished by anyone since. And and when I was in a conversation with him one time, and he said to me, he was, he was laughing, he was telling me about this mistake he made in this early day. And he said to me, Jim, what's the difference between you and me and other people who make mistakes? He said, you and I probably make more mistakes than the average guy, a lot more, because we're doers, we do things, we're going to make more mistakes. He said, but what's the difference between you and me? And I'm so flattered to be included in the you and me with Wayne Heisinger. He said, you and I laugh about it. Not at first, but we learn to laugh about it. But we pick ourselves up, we dust ourselves off, and we get on with it. 
He says, it's the people who go, woe is me, I'll never make that mistake again, who then again become so risk adverse that they're uh, challenged to try and think of anything to do and they become paralyzed. And so I, that, that lesson I uh, got from him meant the world to me in terms of looking around saying yes. And so you'll hear me around our shops and all celebrate failures. I try to let people in our shop know that it's okay to make mistakes. In fact, I work with my younger brother, who's now the CEO of the company and has been for going on five years. But for a while, we had a, a big bookshelf. And on it, it was called Jim's Wall of Shame. And it was all my mistakes. All your mistakes. I the, love it. The vase, I thought that would be the big seller. The, the jacket, I thought we could sell as long as it had floral print on it. And so we had all of my collection. And the guests would come in and they'd walk them over to show Jim's Wall of Mistakes. <laughs> But there's yeah. a little lesson in there, right? The lesson in was, your book, you call it an art form. You, in your book, I believe you call it the art of making mistakes. It, it's it, trying to let people know if, if you're trying hard and you're doing the right thing, we're all going to, not every, we're not going to bat a thousand. And the highest paid people in baseball hit in the 300s. So let's recognize that there'll be mistakes. It's a person who never mis that makes a mistake who's not doing anything. So I want to just get back really briefly to the point about luck. And specifically, you talk about you believe that one of the reasons 1-800-Flowers became so successful was the emergence of the internet, people being more comfortable using credit cards. You advertised on CNN. No one watched CNN, and then the Gulf War happens, and then everyone's watching CNN and seeing your advertisements on CNN. So, you know, was it luck? Well, I think there's a, a fellow who I grew up with. We played baseball together at 10 years old, and he was a terrific guy and a great athlete, good-looking guy. And he and I was supposed to go on to police department the same day. And I decided I was doing so well at St. John's Home for Boys that I'd play that out for a while longer. So he went into the police department, and I did not. And we stayed close our whole lives. Unfortunately, after 30 years, he retired from the police department and within a year died from a massive heart attack. And it was a, a tragedy that you see so often in those ranks. And, and I remember my wife never gets mad at anybody. And he called one time, we was chatting with her. I wasn't around. And she was telling me in the car that night, we were on our way out to dinner, that she was annoyed at him. And I'm thinking, she's annoyed at somebody? She said, he went on to say about how lucky you are. And she said, here he's had his five or six weeks vacation. He calls from uh, his job because he was on the crash crew at the airport at that time because they did a lot of sitting around and eating <laughs> and cooking. And he said, he's talking about how lucky you are, but he's never you know, uh, missed his five or six weeks of vacation in a year. He says, you've gone 10 years without any vacation at a stretch one time. He said, she said, it's not just luck. I said, well, there are lots of people who have worked hard as I do or harder, and they just haven't had the good fortune. But I think so much of it, Michael, is, as I'm sure you talk to your team about, they're a colony. You got to be in the game. You got to show up every morning, and you got to be willing to do things, and you got to be willing to expose yourself to the fact that you might get criticized, or you might do something wrong, or you might make a mistake. And look, you attract clients now, like mostly because of your brand, and people know the quality of the work you did. But in, and you had to make some big, bold decisions and some game-changing acquisitions that you've done. If that didn't go well, you would have caught the, the brunt of that criticism. 
Right. And some people would not make that decision because they don't want to take the risk of the criticism, right? So I'm, I'm hearing that answer as, sure, there may be some luck, make a lot of mistakes, but you got to put yourself out there. You've got to actually take those chances, take smart chances. And then sure, luck plays you know a role. You do want to minimize the risk, no question about it. You do want to do your diligence, right? When you make an acquisition, you really know what the, and the biggest risk for you, I assume, are cultural, right? Yes. You have a yes. culture that's important that, that your clients feel when they interact with you. They have a, a common se- a sense of the common attitude among your people that the customer comes first and what the responsibilities are, what your role as a fiduciary is. And if you're looking at an acquisition and the company has a little bit of an edge to it, like it's more about the comp and they're going to spend a lot more time thinking about new products they can sell to people, not new products they can serve with. Those little subtle differences are things I would suspect your antenna is looking for. Yeah, I should interview in the future about the wealth management business. You do seem to have substantial knowledge. I guess that relates in part to the fact that you're now a, an owner indirectly of Worth Magazine. Well, and so much of that community, it's, it's an amazing community because these are people asking and earning the trust of people at hand, the most personal and threatening kind of information and sense of responsibility for their clients. But the only thing more intimate than that is their spouse. I mean, this is tough stuff. So you have to earn that reputation every day and you can lose it in a flash. Yeah. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to come to that because I do want to talk about some of the key learnings that you point out in your book. But before I do that, I do have to ask, so so then you became a partial owner of the New York Mets, and uh, you have mentioned baseball a couple times, so was that just a childhood dream of yours? Not to be an owner, but to be a fan, yes. I grew up in Queens, the, the Mets are in Queens, and I was there, I, I cut school in the eighth grade to go to opening day at Shea Stadium, I think it was 1963, and it was a... a, a a misty rainy day with Casey Stengel as the manager of the Mets. So a long, deep affinity and fandom for the Mets. And lo and behold, uh, over the years, Mary Lou and I became quite friendly with another man I admire and respect so much, Fred Wilpon and his wife, Judy. And we were friends for many years. And then after Fred and the family decided they needed to take in some limited partners, they asked if I'd be interested because of the friendship and relationship we had. And indeed I was. So a little over eight years ago, we invested in the Mets. And as of a couple of Fridays ago, we sold our interest and had a wonderful and happy experience, financially rewarding and a good experience. It was nothing more fun than, you know, I have, uh, we have three kids. We have six grandkids. I mentioned I'm the oldest of five. So once a year, we'd uh, get a few suites together and have all of, all of our families, brothers and sisters, their kids, the next generation, so we'd have 40, 50, 60 people at a Met game once or twice a year with all the kids there in their Met garb. So for a family from uh, South Queens to get together and have our kids and the grandkids have a real interest in the team and up and coming players, who's in the farm system. It was just a lot of fun. That came to an end just uh, within a month and it was a great eight year ride. That's great. Well, <clears throat> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna share with you my own Jim McCann story. And I wonder if you remember this. I'm guessing you don't. But I did meet you for the first time at the, the Worth headquarters. And I was shooting a video there. And I heard you and a group of other people talking about the Mets. Now, I didn't know that you were one of the owners of the Mets. 
And so I said, oh, you've got to see that there's this great clip on Family Guy about the New York Mets. <laughs> and I showed it to you. And I had no idea you were one of the owners of the Mets when I showed it to you. <laughs> and I'm going to actually just play it right now if, if we can. So far, Halloween's a bigger letdown than being a Mets fan. Opening day, and here's the first pitch, and the season's over. <laughs> do you have any memory of that? I'm guessing I, you don't. I do. I, I remember exactly where it was in the office. That's uh, <laughs> oh, And I was over in a, a, a small conference room I use on the side. You were over where the production goes. And you came over yeah. to say hello. And as we were walking out, you showed that to me on the way out. Yes. And that's when yes. I, uh, I think I booted you in the ear and said, get out of here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If, I, if only I had done more research on you at the time, that was probably not my, my best way to introduce myself. You took it well. Oh, I think it's a great way. <laughs> you actually have a, you, you're clearly very charismatic. And let's talk about that because really one of your themes and again, for our listeners who are interested in getting Jim's book, it's called Stop and Sell the Roses. And it's actually quite entertaining. And there's a lot there's a lot of good stuff in there. We're going to talk a little bit about it. But really, one of the things that you talk about generally is just this need to connect with people, that you can talk about great technology and great business and great products. But really, what it all comes down to is connecting with other people. I, I think it's a... If we understand that about ourselves and about the people around us, we'll be better friends, we'll be better partners, we'll be better business associates if we just maintain our consciousness about that. And I guess I was working as a very young man, 19, 20, 21 years old, 22 years old, working at the St. John's Home for Boys, living in that group home that I described to you earlier. And here I had these 10 guys who were 10 tough guys. 14 to 20 years old who came from very tough backgrounds and I was terrible at the work when I began but what I learned from them was a, a real eye-opener for me and it changed my life uh, frankly Michael and that is just what you said we as creatures on this planet yearn for and crave social intimacy we want to have friends we want to be a friend we want to love, we want to be loved. And I know it sounds corny, but it's as real can be. Not to me. And it makes the world go round. And even though these were tough, these are the kind of kids, if you saw them on the streets or on the subway, you'd make sure you moved away from them. But I realized and I learned, A, to develop relationships with each of them individually, which is not how I started. I sort of felt like I was the uh, lion tamer trying to keep these uh, kids from uh, uh, ripping one another apart. And I tried to have a relationship with the group. You don't have relationships with groups. You have relationships with individuals. And I had a, a mentor in this work, a, a member of a religious uh, order of brothers who ran the St. John's. And this one fellow mentored me and saying, take a look at who's successful in this work. You can be successful too. And, and it's all about relationships and forming relationships and serving those relationships. And I think my job is still a little bit like that today, is to take people and, and create an environment where they feel comfortable, where they feel appreciated, where they don't feel threatened, and they know that they, they're expected to try things and do things that they would have never thought, wouldn't ever have thought that they could do without the prompting or without the, the encouragement. And my job with 10 kids in a group on them was to find ways to shape their behavior to create goals, to create ways of keeping score, 
to make it fun, to make it interesting, to laugh at myself. By the way, you live with 10 teenage boys, you will learn an awful lot about yourself that uh, 100 years of psychiatry will never let you know. I'm sure. Sure. Wait a minute. Your left bicep is smaller than your right bicep, or you know, you, every time you're about to say something, you have this little tick. I, please, guys, I don't need to know everything, <laughs> but they will tell you everything about you and anything you're inconsistent on. When we created the curse jar, trust me, if I slipped, they'd all come and watch me put the money in the curse jar. You know? <laughs> but it was such a good and important learning experience, not without pain. And the pain was having lost a couple of kids over the years that were terrific young men that shouldn't have gone and because of violence, because of drugs, or in one specific case, a car accident with a kid coming back late at night, tried to jump across the expressway and get, get, he was killed. So pain, yes, but knowing that you were a good influence in their lives, but more importantly, realizing I was getting much more out of it than I was giving to it. And it was all about the key, you know, these big tough guys. We wanted to know that you cared about them and that you were consistent and that you were going to go out of your way for them any chance you could because it was beyond a job. It was something much more important than that. Yeah. So I, that, that's a lesson I took away from that. I'm not going to tell you I learned it that day, but as I reflected over the years about that work I did, the more and more I thought about it, the more and more I realized what a valuable lesson they taught me. And I'm quite concerned right now, Mike, and you as a leader of a big and important company like Colony must be have the same concerns, but this remote working environment? Yes. I, I'm frightened. I'm frightened about the consequence it has on people. I'm in the office today. I'm in at least one day a week now. And I, I can't wait to get in here and see other people. I, and I've been writing about this extensively, speaking about it extensively. This is a concept that we call social capital. And social capital, these bonds that hold us together, this is the, the kind of thing that can be developed best only when there are these intimate connections. And I agree. I, I think that this whole remote environment ultimately could have some difficult consequences for all of us. Well, well right now, here we are early in December. I, I, for, our, for our group, for our company, I was asked to, right after Labor Day, to forecast what I saw happening. And I'm on the board of one of the most, one of the best health systems in the country here in New York called NYU Langone. And so I have access to the clinicians and the researchers. So I have good inputs from a lot of different camps. And my forecast then was we were going to have a tough winter. Tough not just because of what we know is happening now with the second surge here, but also with the days getting shorter, the, uh, the temperatures dropping, uh, darker. More, you're not going out to the restaurant. My wife and I went out probably four or five times to restaurants at the end of the summer because they had outdoor dining and we could be with friends. But now that's over, so you can't do anything out. So people are much more contained now. And I think we've had a loneliness epidemic going on in this country for years, and this has just accelerated it. And, you know, who, a young lady who works with me pointed out to me the other day, last week, Generation Z has grown up digitally. They're digitally native. These are people 18, 22, 23. And 79% of Generation Z say they felt alone most of the time. Most of the time. And 
Millennials, the most gregarious, everyone said, no, they're so self-centered. They're not, they're not going to work hard. They don't meld well. They don't really feel company spirit. Well, you know and I know that's nonsense. They work very hard. We have a charity called Smile Farms here. They volunteer their time all the time. I'm just amazed by this. But 21% of them say they've never, ever had a friend, a close friend. It's scary to me. I'm a social being. And I know how I feel. And I'm an old guy, so I have family, I have friends, I have extended family. And I know all the people in our workplace. But I'm concerned about folks, especially in this uh, quarantine kind of time, what the consequences are of that. And I've been spending a lot of time talking to people who know what they're talking about from the, uh, the clinical world on the subject. And frankly, I find it frightening. Yeah. I, I wonder if you see any irony in the fact that one of the people who was, frankly, one of the early pioneers in e-commerce thinks so much about personal connection, despite the fact that you were one of the people that helped put e-commerce on the map, this way for us to engage with us let, with each other less directly. Well, how much worse would this pandemic be, Michael, if we didn't have Zoom If we didn't have high-speed internet and we didn't have the ability to buy things through e-commerce. Certainly true. I mean, I I shudder to think of how bad this would be. Yeah. But we do have it. Uh, And I'm not going to tell you it's the same, but just over the weekend, I was chatting with Meredith, who is my chief of staff, who I haven't seen in person now in nine months. And I said, Meredith, I know you're not here, but the fact that we can, at, at the beginning of this, I didn't do a lot of Zoom. People wanted to do a Zoom call. I said, look, a regular phone call is fine. That's enough. But now I'm all in because it fakes me out into thinking that, Michael, you and I, after a while, you forget that we're doing this electronically. I feel like we're in the same room. And thank God for that. But, you know, as in terms of our business, it's, look, it's binary. We talked about that poor fellow who opens up a restaurant on March 15th of 2020, how bad luck is just overwhelming to that individual. But from a, so this has binary consequences, it seems to me. And our business, because we're in two things, we're e-commerce enabled and we're uh, in the business of helping people express and connect. This has been uh, quite good for our business in, the, in terms of demand. Now, sure. we're not just selling digital products. We make real products, foodstuffs. We grow our food. We make our flowers. So it, we still have to get it out the door. So the challenges are positive challenges. How do we handle the demand? How do we keep our people safe? But it's had a very positive effect on demand because people really need, especially now, to express themselves and connect to all those important people in their lives. So Jim, just a a couple more questions before we move into our final rapid round of questions. And one of the things that I loved about your book was these 10 semi-commandments of success. And I'm going to just really briefly read them. I'm going to ask you to maybe speak to a couple of your favorites and and to expand upon them. So spend your youth doing something original. Don't worry about not having an MBA. Don't wait to know everything before you start. Brand yourself. Ruthless types finish last. I love that one. Don't reinvent the wheel. Smarter labor is cheaper than cheap labor. Trust your family ties. High margins aren't everything. Get personal and planless isn't necessarily clueless. (laughs) So uh, I wouldn't expect you to remember those. Uh, Maybe you do remember them all. 
but um, pick a couple and expand a little bit on them. Well, uh, listening to you go through those, and I wrote those a long time ago, you know, as we've gone through a very interesting political season, and now the good news is we know how things came out and we didn't have this big period of disruption and concern that so many feared. But one of the, so I'm a curious political fellow. I like the politics. I like, I like a, a good debate. But I'm a little disappointed you don't hear anyone really pushing forward ideas of thoughtful change. It seems to not be a lot of original ideas there. And one that I would like to get involved with, and I'd ask your advice as to how, Michael, but someone sent me a, a, a link thing on the online the other day about all the people, all the uh, Hollywood people that my parents would know and I knew some of and how they all served in World War II and everyone seemed to have service. And we don't have that anymore, yet the, the institution was so proud of and we hold in the highest regard in this country is the military, deservedly so. So I, I say that to come to a recommendation, which is I think as a country, we'd all be better off if our young people did a year of service. Many uh, countries be, do that. <laughs> a, a lot, look at the strength of what's going on in Israel now with their tech boom. And I, I know so many of these, and invested in several of these young technology companies out of Israel, but there's something about that service that they all do, men and women, and it doesn't have to be combat related, that creates a, a team spirit, a can-do kind of attitude. Nothing's, nothing can't be done. It, it does a lot for the culture. And when you look at the military in this country, how it was oftentimes such a big social change agent in terms of integration, in terms of how women are treated in the workplace. You go up to, I'm not saying they were on the cutting edge, but once the military or business got behind a social change, it happened. And it wasn't really going to happen until each of them did. So I just think a year of service would help us know one another better, help us to mature better, and maybe learn lessons like I learned in a home for boys. People in a year of service would learn those same kind of life lessons. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, beyond military service. There are just so many opportunities to serve in the community as look, well. Look at Teach serve. for America. What a wonderful exactly. program. Exactly. There are so many of those opportunities. And unfortunately, some people never take advantage of them. And some people don't take advantage of them until it's safer to do that later in their career and may miss the formative experience that you had, for example. Well, plus, some people never get out of their own element. They grow up and, and the social network never really changes or expands. And I just think if you're working in a, a, a Teach for America and you're away from your family and you're forced to create a new circle, a new social community, you learn skills and you'll have relationships that serve you the rest of your life. And they're not likely to look exactly like you or have the same background as you. Yeah. So when you're, other point when you're hiring people and you see that little something special, the young lady who went to a, a small college, she went to Bentley College outside of Boston there, but she was, she had okay grades, pretty good. She was a B student, but she was in student government. She ran on the track team, not a medal winner, but always participated. She ran this committee, that committee, and was in, uh, in charge of the spring dance. There's something special there, right? Yeah, yeah. You see the potential, you see all the upside. And this is a debate that we frequently have. And I'm with you on this, Jim, that I'd much rather hire for potential. And you actually go so far as to say that hire for 
a gut feeling, so to speak, much more so than a resume. And for me, it's just more about fit and potential. You know, the resume, I'm not saying it's irrelevant, it's relevant, but yeah, for me, it's much more thinking about whether this person, for whatever reason, their life experience has the potential. Michael, do you have an intern program at Colony? We do indeed. Yes, we do. And I'm actually very involved in it. I like to be very much involved with the interns. I very much enjoy it. In fact, the last summer, we had an intern program and uh, we actually did some projects around Gen Z and how Gen Z is seeing the world. Any great insights that came from that? Yeah, actually, I would say this, that and I've written about this for anyone who wants to, to look it up. But yes, actually, I would say that Gen Z is still full of hope. Despite everything that's happening, these are people, and again, it's hard to generalize about a whole generation, but the people that that I got to work with, they still have a lot of hope and enthusiasm and optimism for the future of our country and for their futures as well. We have an intern program here at Flowers. And uh, so disappointing this year that we had to go to a virtual program with a oh, same much with us, smaller number of people. But we would have, on average, in our Long Island office, where it's about 500 people, we'd have 38 uh, people in our intern program. And as always, we find ways to interact with them, bump up against them, and, and there'd always be that two or three or four that just had that little something sparkle. And yes, they're all smart. And yes, we tried to get real diversity in our program. So different schools, different ethnicities, different geography as best we could. Fancy schools like you went to and not so fancy schools get a really good mix. And we do some projects, but anyone who doubts <laughs> that young people you know, are gonna wanna work hard and build their own careers, come hang out here and watch these 38 kids. Uh, first of all, they make us, they, they up our game a lot. When they first arrived at a buzz, really gets louder in the shop and there's a little something going on and we give them projects so that they have to work with people from other departments and get our stodgy bosses here to do things. This year they did a, a couple of kinds of videos that were really funny, but you always find those three or four that had that little something special, that little spark of curiosity, that little personality that makes people want to be around them. Yeah. Uh, it's it's energy. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, that doesn't come across in one or two interviews. No, I would imagine not. Exactly. So so let's move into our teaching moment. And I'm going to ask you three quick questions. If you have a a quick answer off the top of your head, great. If not, you can take a little bit of time and, and, and think about it. But here's a question for you. What single habit, technique or tip could you offer us that has helped you be your most extraordinary self? If you had to pick one, what would you say it was? I had a conversation last week with a young man who used to work at a charity I was involved in. I was just blown away by this young man. So smart, so clever, so creative. And we hadn't chatted probably in a couple of years. So we caught up last week and he said, Jim, I always like talking to you because you're so curious about everything. Mm-hmm. And, and I was like, well, I, I guess I am. And I had this chat with one of my sons recently. Remember, my sons are grown. They have their own kids now. And he said to me, Dad, you always went out of your way to expose us to all the really smart people you were lucky enough to come across. And he said, I will confess to you that in my earlier years, I was intimidated by that as, as much as you can imagine. 
He says, it wasn't until I got a little old that I said, geez, what an opportunity this is. And I shouldn't be intimidated. You should recognize that there's going to be a lot of people a lot smarter than you in this world. But that doesn't mean you can't learn from them. You can't appreciate them and want to be around them to learn more. So I'd say curiosity is an important ingredient in, uh, in success. So, Michael, even when you're interviewing somebody and you realize five minutes in, they're not right for this. They're not right for colony. They're not right for this job. But and then you start to think, what's the amount of time I should give this person to be courteous, even though it's not going to work out in a job offer? Well, there's something you can learn from that person. Agreed. And so make good use of that time. And don't assume just because they're not right for your shop that they don't have some value and something that you can learn from them, whether they're Generation Z or Millennial, what their habits are, what their interests are, how they consider relationships. There's something you can learn. So curiosity, I think, is an important ingredient. I love that. And I so agree with you. And I agree with you about that observation. I myself do take criticism for spending too much time with people that we're not going to be work with, working with. And I'm with you. There's an opportunity to learn and to teach in that context. Yes. And those little opportunities are how we change the world. So my next question for you is, what's the best advice you've ever received from someone else? I, I, the first thing that comes to mind is what I mentioned earlier, which is understand that you're going to make mistakes, but understand successful people recover quickly. Yeah. Get over it. Get up, get on with it. And if you're really good, make a joke out of your failure. Okay. And in turn, the best advice you've ever given, would it be the, the same thing? I don't know. There's a, a young man who I, one of my mentees, and he's just a remarkable young man. And I'm torn because he and I were just, he's an African-American kid. He's just a remarkable young man. He worked for us for a while. A buddy of mine said, let me tell you a story about this fellow. And he did. And he said, I want you to hire him. I said, well, can I interview him first? <laughs> he said, no, you're going to hire him. And so we did. And he worked here for about a year. And then he had an opportunity to move to Washington. And I gave him advice recently. And I hope it was right. He says, well, I'd like to go be an entrepreneur. I said, well, okay, let's take that apart. Let's delve into it. He's doing very well. He's a manager in a, in a tech company. And I said to him, we have a mutual friend, someone I introduced him to is in charge of recruiting at a very big brand name company in New York that everybody knows. And I introduced the two of them and she's been courting him that she'd like to recruit him. And I said, you have an opportunity at this point in time because of your intellect, your personality, your obvious integrity, that you're going to get a disproportionate size of opportunity without putting money at capital at risk within a company. And I said, I thought I'd be the last one to ever say this. I said, but before you cash in, and he didn't have any great, he just was in love with the idea. He didn't have an, a business he wanted to pursue. He didn't have a passion for, for this craziness. I said, you have optionality that I never had. So before you make that leap, play out this hand a little bit further and go listen to her offer as to maybe come work for this big company. So I hope it's honest advice, in a context of a point in time, I think it's reasonable. I don't know if it's the best advice. It sounds prudent as well. Well, thank you, Jim. And let me just say that having got to spend this time with you, 
I can see the warmth inside of you. I've now experienced it and the way you engage with people. It is pretty special the way that you continue to use my name, to engage with me, to ask me questions as well. I can see exactly what you're talking about in terms of of addressing this need that people have. And I suspect it just comes naturally to you, which I I really experienced and I want to appreciate that. Thank you. Well, I don't know if it's natural, but I, I think it's just being, it's filling my own need. I want more and better relationships. And if we just had a conversation, I just answered your questions, that wouldn't help us to build a relationship. So when we're allowed to engage a person together again, which will happen come this summer or so, uh, summer of 21, I hope when we see one another, we start with a relationship that wouldn't have happened if it was just me answering your questions. And so that's how I enter. Can do any of us ever say, no, I have way too many friends. I have way too many good relationships in my life, and I just don't have any interest or any need for any more. I'm going to tell you, that person doesn't have a real friend in their life. So can you ever have too many? Michael, I hope we've begun a friendship. Me too. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the extraordinary Jim McCann. And thank you to our sponsor. The Colony Group is a national wealth and business management company with 15 offices across the country that itself seeks the extraordinary as it pursues its unrelenting mission to providing clients with peace of mind and empowering their visions of tomorrow. To learn more about The Colony Group and how it manages beyond money, visit www.thecolonygroup.com. You can also follow The Colony Group on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Colony Group. For Seeking the Extraordinary, I'm Michael Nathanson. Follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter at Nathanson underscore MJ and learn more about my ongoing search for The Extraordinary.